Welcome to HD Buzzcast, Huntington's Disease Research News in Plain Language, written by scientists for the global HD community. Hi everyone and welcome to a special edition of HD Buzzcast, recorded in June 2017 in Vermont. My name's Ed Wilde and in this edition, Jeff Carroll and I will be interviewing Professor Leslie Jones and Professor Sarah Tabrizi. Leslie is from Cardiff University and Sarah is from University College London. And we'll be talking to them about a newly published piece of work describing what's known as a genetic modifier for Huntington's disease. So, Sarah, one of the things we learned at this meeting was that there was an exciting new finding, there has been an exciting new finding about the TRAC HD study. So, like, first, could you just remind the listeners a little bit about what the TRAC HD study was all about? So, TRAC HD was what we call a natural history study, where we wanted to try and look at the disease and how it progressed in a large cohort of people. And we looked at pre-manifest or pre-symptomatic individuals, people with early stage disease and matched controls. And the reason it was important was that we took them and did what is called deep phenotyping. And what deep phenotyping means is that you look at the progression of the disease with a mixture of lots of different types of brain imaging, thinking tests, ways of looking at motor function or how your limbs and walking and balance work, and behavioural psychiatric symptoms. And so the TRAC HD study was over four years, yearly measures, and to try and capture something about progression in Huntington's disease. So it's a way of taking some people that you know are destined to get the disease and look at them very carefully over a couple of years yes. and measure how their brain changes, how they move differently, how they act differently without actually testing a drug in that. Exactly. Okay. And so previously, this has been published before, you know, every year the track HD study, there was a paper published. And so what's this new finding? How is it different than what those papers were published before? So one of the things that was apparent in the track HD study, but also from the kind of 20 years I have of seeing patients in clinic, is that patients differ in how they progress for the same CAG count. And I've always been interested in what modifies that progression between individuals and even between brothers and sisters in the same family. So we wanted to take what we'd done in track and try and see if we could develop a new way of looking at progression that would allow us then to do genetic studies. And so for the genetic studies, you need to come up with a single measure that you can link to genetic analysis of DNA. So we looked at the data, we looked at brain imaging, five or six different measures, thinking tests, what we call motor or neurological tests, and psychiatric tests, and came up with a measure that we call the progression statistic measure, a track progression statistic. So a sort of a single score that you can tell how sort of rapidly someone's progressing. It was really a score to say how much progression they have okay. over a period of time okay. between the baseline and four years later. And so it came up as a single number. We had to remove the behaviour scores because many people get treatments which are effective for behavioural symptoms. And it was really all the brain imaging, the thinking and the motor symptoms. And what we found was that they all tracked together. Those that had brain imaging progression, thinking progression and neurological progression 
all went in the same direction. So there wasn't different subtypes, which people had thought was going to be the case. So we sort of collapsed HD progression into a single number that you can quantify really accurately. And the advantage of doing it in the way that we did it was age of onset's very helpful, mm -hmm. but age of onset relies on going back to case notes and working out when the age of onset was, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes that requires historical data. But also it let us study pre-manifest subjects who did not have onset, but that we had measures of aspects that were of progression. Of changes in their brain. Exactly. So Leslie, I know that where we're headed with this is the idea of looking at how genetic variations contribute to this progression or alter the progression. So maybe for people who don't know, if you could introduce just briefly the idea of the kinds of genetic changes that we're looking at, you know, specifically we hear this term SNPs. So if you could explain <laughs> just like generally what that means and how they're used. So everybody's genome is full of variations. So the main genes that everybody has are recognizably the same, but there are differences, like the Huntington's disease mutation, which can cause the disease if the CAG repeat is really long. So that is an example of a variation. But the sort of variation that you can measure very easily are variations in just one single letter of the DNA, which can be one thing or another, and you can tell which it is. And there's lots and lots of that variation throughout everybody's complete set of chromosomes. And you can use that because some of those variations will actually affect the products of the genes in which they reside. And if you know what those variations are, you can go back and work out how they might affect the gene products. And essentially what we did in the study with Sarah is we took Sarah's progression measure and we took the variants throughout the whole genome. So this is thousands and thousands and thousands of variants. And we looked to see if the progression measure and the variants in the genes tracked together. So, so whether how, they correlated. How do you measure all those thousands of genetic variations? I mean, it sounds pretty tricky. So actually, we've been very lucky that technology's really moved on recently. So essentially, you can put all of these things on a chip and you- Almost like a microchip for a computer. Like a microchip, but it's bigger than a microchip. Not a potato chip. <laughs> it's not a potato chip, no. So you can put something that will detect those changes in different spots on this chip. Then you add the DNA of each individual person to a different chip, and you can read out their changes. So thousands of changes for each person. Yes. And then what you're looking for, as I understand it, is some relationship between, oh, people who have this particular variation or variations in this particular region have a faster or slower progression of HD. Right, and it's maybe helpful just so that people get exactly what a genetic modifier is, to think about two people who have had a positive test for the HD mutation. And let's say they both have 42 CAG repeats in their Huntington gene. They might nonetheless look very different from each other. As Sarah said, one of them might progress very quickly in terms of movement problems. The other might progress really, really slowly and look almost identical 
even if they were the same age, they might look almost the same as they did five years ago. So one is progressing quickly, one's progressing slowly, even though they have the same CAG repeat length, because we know that the repeat length mm. can also influence progression. And so what you're looking at is, after you've taken the CAG repeat length yes. into, into account... And age. And age, which of those differences in progression are linked to genetic differences? Exactly. Because you can quantify the progression really nicely. So you've got a number, mm-hmm. and you can look at a similar set of numbers that are produced from the genetic data mm. and you can simply add up how many changes there are and find out where they are and that gives you a clue about the biology that actually might be driving that change. So that's the important thing to note I think here. And before we talk about the findings, could we just ask, so you know, ultimately how many patients or how many participants DNA do you need? Because it seems, you know, it's a big complicated problem. You have to look at all these thousands of changes in different letters of the DNA and you've got this progression score. How many people do you have to look at to see that relationship? It's not necessarily a completely simple answer. Mm. So generally speaking, you need to look at a lot of people. Mm. But if you have a change that gives something that causes a big effect, Mm then you need fewer people. Mm. So in this, in the case of our study, we actually found something that probably has a really big effect. So we found it in a relatively small number of people. Normally, I have to say, you would expect to use at least thousands and possibly tens of thousands of people. And Liz, you've been involved with these kind of big genetic studies in HD for a long time. How many thousands of patients of DNA do you think you've worked with on your various projects altogether <laughs> for the HD studies? Over 10,000, I right. would say, from a number of different studies that have been run in various different places around the world. And essentially, all of those subjects' DNAs can be pulled together because mm. what we have used in the past is the age at motor onset because that is probably the thing that is easiest to collect. It's sometimes not terribly accurate though, and you can only get it on people who already have manifest disease. So that was one of the motivations behind trying to develop a different measure that you could develop on more people, and importantly, was more accurate. So the idea then was that by developing this measure and using all of that wealth of data that had been collected through track and boiling it all down to this one progression score statistic, mm. you could theoretically find important genetic modifiers with many fewer people involved. Exactly. Before we talk about the findings, which are really interesting, Leslie, one more thing about if, so if people are hearing this and they're motivated and they're excited about participating in research, first of all, I want to put in a personal plug, which is that you never know what your samples are going to get used for. And as someone who's participated in observational HD research, you know, we donate our data and our samples, and we don't even know what technologies are going to be invented. These chips you're talking about didn't exist when many of the people who provided those samples provided them. So I just want to make that plug. But having made that, how would you encourage, how could HD family members and community members be involved now that the track HD study Sarah's talking about is over? What can they do now? Well, many people are joining the Enroll study and we're continuing to do genetics in the enrol study and we have just had the genetic data from the first cohort of people who were recruited primarily in enrol for that was about another two and a half thousand samples and this is not necessarily just an additive thing so you don't necessarily get additive information because actually if you double the sample size you will more than double the number of interesting variants that you find and potentially the number of genes that you implicate so it's hugely powerful and one of the best ways to increase the power of such studies is 
to recruit more people. And you're right, nobody knew when they were recruited. The scientists didn't know, the clinicians didn't know, and the subjects didn't know that actually this is what would be done with the data because the technology at the time was not available. So we've set the stage here, we have this progression score that you guys have identified from studying the track HD subjects, the chips that Leslie's talked about that let us look at all of this genetic variation. So when you went and looked for correlation between those things, what genes jumped out, what parts of the genome seemed to have impact on progression? Leslie? So when we first did that analysis, we actually saw, given it was such a small sample, a peak that almost made it to being what people would call significant in a statistical sense. But actually it was such a big peak that we thought that it was very likely real. The other reason we thought it was real was because it was in a gene that we'd seen before in previous studies. So when you say peak, you're meaning, okay, there's a, we're looking across the entire stretch of DNA of one person and there's one particular region in which those variations seem like they keep occurring with this progression score. Yes, so in fact, the way that you look at these is that you plot them on a graph and the product that you get is called a Manhattan plot and it's called a Manhattan plot because it has peaks in it that look like the Manhattan skyline and essentially we found whatever the tallest building is yeah. don't say Trump Tower <laughs> no it's now the uh, Freedom Tower the Freedom yeah. Tower you found a Freedom Tower on chromosome five. five and this was in precisely the same spot as we'd seen previously in our last such study which was using agent motor onset. So we were quite excited by that. So there's one little particular region of someone's entire complement mm-hmm. of DNA that seems to be influence how fast of a progression they have of HD. What genes are in there that you find particularly exciting? <laughs> so the gene that we found most exciting was a gene called MSH3. So MSH3 is a gene that actually has been studied before in Huntington's mm-hmm. disease. So people know that if you take mice with the HD gene and you cross them with mice that don't have an MSH3 gene, that this actually can improve some aspects of that mouse. And in particular, what it does is it prevents the CAG repeat in the Huntington's gene in the mouse from expanding in a phenomenon that we call somatic expansion happening in cells in the body. So let me get this straight. So someone who is destined to get Huntington's disease inherited from mom or dad a CAG expansion in their Huntington gene that's, as Ed said before, something like 42 CAGs. And you're saying that in some cells of the body that doesn't stay 42 or 44 or whatever, it gets even larger? So it does. And this has been seen over many years and in not just in Huntington's disease but in other diseases which have the same mutational type and expansion of a triplet repeat mm. in the DNA if you like. So we thought that this was potentially very interesting. The somatic expansion is seen most or the biggest expansions occur in the striatum in the brain which of course is the first region to degenerate in Huntington's disease and also in the liver we don't really understand why we see particularly high expansions in the liver but we do. But just to drill this down to be super simple people who have a positive genetic test for HD they already have an expanded Huntington gene what we're talking about is extra expansions where the gene gets even bigger in some parts of the body and that is bad. Yes so we all know that the longer your repeat, the earlier you are likely to get the mm. disease, although we can't predict accurately when that will be. But it's very apparent that in particular cells in the body, 
that you get extra expansion. And that's referred to as somatic expansion mm. because the somatic cells are the cells of the body. And what we knew already about MSH3 was that if you take an HD mouse and you remove that gene from it, that expansion is less likely to happen. So getting rid of MSH3 in an HD mouse is good. Yes, yes. It, it also furthermore makes the mouse's HD-like symptoms better. So right, that's right. In, while reducing that instability, it also has the effect of making the disease milder in that animal. So what was important about this study then was that it took that mouse work and it said Mother Nature has done this experiment. Absolutely. In humans, with this genetic change in MSH3, those people are progressing more slowly. Exactly. So I think the important thing here was that we looked at it in the track cohort, and then whenever you get a genetic result, you have to validate it in thousands of other people to check that your genetic result is meaningful. So we went to the registry data set where there was measures of progression, not the microscopic measures of progression that we had in track, but measures of progression, and we developed a progression score similar in the registry cohort, which is a study like Enroll, and used that to validate the result. And when we looked at the two sets of data, the peak at MSH3 was highly significant in the Manhattan plot and really validated the initial result in track HD. And I think from my perspective, as someone who's really focused on trying to develop therapies and find treatments, this was very interesting because it told us two things. One, it did something which we call reverse validation of mouse work. Because many people question how useful mouse models of Huntington's disease can be because they differ sometimes from the human disease. But this is actually evidence that work in mice, HD mouse models, we showed backwards that they had actually predicted something which we did not expect that is occurring in humans, as Ed said, mother nature. So now we can again go back to mice and do experiments there that are impossible to do in people or unethical anyway to do in people to try to get down to understand it. Exactly. What this also tells us about MSH3 is that the modifier of disease progression comes back to the gene itself. Mm -hmm. So the biggest modifier is something that modifies the CAG repeat. Mm. And the importance of that is it means that we have to focus on therapies that are, are targeting the DNA or the RNA right at the beginning because the modifier is again the CAG. And what we found is that a change in MSH3 was associated with slower progression. And the key thing now is to understand that mechanism so we can harness it for therapeutics that target the CAG and slow down that slippage that Leslie was talking about. But it sounds like we have a very specific target. You know, instead of just saying, oh, it'd be nice if this expansion didn't happen or something, you have something much more specific, which is we have this gene, MSH3, it does something that leads to this instability, and that's a much more specific target to try to, say, develop a drug for. Exactly, and we had the added advantage that many groups had already been studying MSH3. Many groups had validated MSH3 in Huntington's mouse models to tell us that this was important and the human studies really verified that. And is there something particularly special about the fact that it's 
switching off MSH3 that we want to do? Is that something that's perhaps easier to do with a drug than if you had to try and replace something that was missing? I think almost certainly because MSH3 is an enzyme. So I think that... So it's a kind of a machine. Yeah. Exactly. So enzymes, because they are molecular machines that make one molecule change into a different type of molecule, if you can find something that will inhibit that, and right. that's how many drugs that are currently in the pharmaceutical armory work today, that's much easier than trying to actually make something work better. Right, so if you think of it as a machine, what we really want to do is find like a wrench or a spanner that we can stick into the machine and it stops the machine working. And that's uh, easier well, to do. So <laughs> if you stick a wrench into a machine, sometimes the effects are very poor. What we want is to apply the brake. Okay. So we want to do this in a controlled kind of way mm -hmm. but I think it's potentially quite a good drug target because we know quite a lot about the system that mm -hmm. it works in mm -hmm. it's been studied previously in other diseases we know quite a lot about the things that it complexes with which also came up as being potentially quite interesting mm -hmm. in the studies that we've done so I think that that gives us a good background on which to do more mechanistic studies that might allow us to probe down into exactly how that engine is working. I think this is important because it comes back to that genetics can help us develop new therapies and I think this is the importance of this. One thing I just want to mention is that some people have asked me about this in terms of patients and families. The progression statistic that we developed was just a number to try and understand a way of measuring progression that allowed us to use it in genetic studies with big data sets. The progression statistic is not a measure on an individual basis of how someone is progressing. So we can't use that progression statistic to predict progression or to say how someone is progressing. So on average it's useful if you're looking at a group of people. Yes. But for in one individual person, it's not going to say what's going to happen to them tomorrow. Exactly. And, the and same I think that's important to understand in terms of that we won't be able to use the progression mm -hmm. statistic to predict an individual's progression. Mm -hmm. And the same is true of this genetic change, right? People shouldn't expect to come to clinic and for us to tell them whether they have this particular genetic change. Because again, it's, a, it's an effect that we see in groups. We don't think mm -hmm. it's valuable in individual cases. That's exactly right. Absolutely true, because everybody will have all sorts of other genetic variation that will potentially alter the exact way that those pathways work. So but is, is it safe to say that that's something that we're working towards? Like, especially if we come up with the first treatments that really work to slow HD, is it possible we might be coming up with panels of tests so that we can get as much information about people as possible, perhaps to guide treatment decisions in the future? Yes. I think that's right. And I think in other diseases, for example in cancer, people have genetic tests done on the tumour and those genetic results on the tumour direct the treatment plan. And one day in HD when we have similar effective groups of treatment as they do in cancer, that might happen as well. So it sounds like this is sort of a really great example of how thousands of patients in the community, hundreds of clinicians over the years tracking those patients, good mouse research being done, and now these new technologies kind of all coming together. I mean, it feels very exciting. Mm -hmm. So it's what's next? <laughs> mechanism. We need to understand the mechanism. We need to understand more about what's happening in humans and in human cells, and then work on 
developing the break that Leslie mentioned to modulate or affect MSH3 as a potential drug target, as a therapy. And I think one of the other ways of getting at that mechanism is simply to do more genetics mm. that will reveal more important members of those pathways that will allow us to drill down rather deeper into the exact mechanism that might be working because in order to develop a really good targeted specific treatment you really need to have a good grasp of the mechanism. Absolutely. I think we aren't yet ready to screen new drugs. We'll get understand the mechanism but then the drug screening can then start. Right and of course we know that this is an important pathway right? Thanks Absolutely. to all of this work we know that Studying the pathway in detail is not a waste of time because, as we've said several times, Mother Nature has already proven mm -hmm. that this genetic change is something that makes a real difference mm -hmm. to the progression of Huntington's disease in real patients, real And we can beings. plan now for how we're going to test and screen molecules that affect MSH3 function. Put the brake on, and that work can start now, and many groups in the world should start working on that, I think. The work's already begun, right? It has. Yes. Fantastic. We're busy collaborating with people who are experts in this area because they already have a lot of the technologies that we'll need to deploy. And that's been the good thing, actually, is that we didn't find something completely unique. There are many colleagues in the Huntington's field and in the repeat diseases field that we're already setting up collaborations who can give us their expertise because they know a huge amount about MSH3 already. And when will you stop? When we have a treatment for Huntington's disease. Okay. An effective treatment that slows the progression of Huntington's disease. Deal. Preferably Deal. more than one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Deal. Great. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Sarah. And you can find out more about this research by visiting the journal where it was recently published, which is called The Lancet Neurology, or you can find out more at hdbuzz.net. One thing to explain which wasn't covered in the interview is this idea of what we call a SNP. SNP sounds like something to do with a pair of scissors, but it's actually an abbreviation. It's SNP, which means single nucleotide polymorphism. This is a genetic difference between people where the DNA sequence differs just by one chemical letter. So the sequence that we represent as A may have changed to C or something like that. So it's essentially a single letter spelling difference between two people. We call those letters nucleotide and instead of difference, scientists say polymorphism to sound clever. So SNP, single nucleotide polymorphism or SNP. So when you hear about people talking about this SNP was significant, this SNP is a genetic modifier, that's what we mean. Thanks very much for listening to HD Buzzcast. We'll be back soon. Mm -hmm.